Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. Along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, we have the ethos that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity, because movement is part of what makes your life complete. Moving to Live interviews professionals in the movement field who have a variety of experiences, education, and professional titles. At the end of the day, we all want to move more, and we want our patients, athletes, or clients to move more or move better more efficiently, or move with less pain. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise professions. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. Each Moving to Live interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single listen, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. Before we get to the interview, a quick request. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share the podcast with your friends or anyone who understands that movement is a lifestyle. We appreciate it, and our guests appreciate it too. Welcome back to another edition of Moving to Live. As you heard in the intro, Moving to Live, along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, have the ethos, movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. We really want people to think about movement as the norm, not the abnorm. And I try to seek out interesting people in the movement field. Some of them you may have heard of. Some of them might come across from uh, searching on the internet or something pops up on social media. And today's guest, I actually came across... uh, probably about six months ago when I was looking at natural footwear and I saw that he had appeared on a podcast of uh, two people who were involved in natural footwear. And he had the idea of what you need to have for flat pedals or for biking pedals. There's a much larger platform. And so rather than just calling him up and saying, Hey, can I interview you? The first thing I did is I bought a pair of pedals, tried them out a little bit. Uh, my girlfriend tried them out. She bought a pair. I now have two pairs. I will tell today's guest, I probably will not give them up uh, and use them on my gravel bike, but I can tell you on my fat bike, they have a permanent spot. Today, we're talking with James Wilson. He is a mountain biking coach. He is the inventor of a type of pedal that we'll talk about. And what I found when I dropped down the rabbit hole of social media is he's also involved with Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So James, thanks for taking time to respond to my email and reach talk to uh, Moving to Live. Yeah, Ben, no, my pleasure. Always happy to uh, spread my propaganda in, uh, in different areas. So uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So my favorite question I always ask Moving to Live guests is you're stuck in an elevator or you're at a, a mountain bike festival or on a mountain bike ride and you're wearing a t-shirt that identifies who you are. What is your, in a positive way, what's your elevator spiel when somebody says, hey, James, what do you, what do, you do for a living? And what's your response? Haha, <laughs> as little as possible. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting question because uh, I don't really know how to answer it because I, I have a few different hats and, and, it, and they've all led to a pretty interesting, unique spot for me. But uh, in a nutshell, if somebody asks me that, I tell them I am a strength coach and an internet entrepreneur. That's kind of uh, it in a nutshell, and which, of course, usually leads to more questions. But uh, that's, uh, that's what I do. And I know you're in uh, Fruita, Colorado. Where did you yeah. start out? I mean, where did you grow up? And somebody who's involved in the movement field, were you an active kid growing up or was it something you discovered later in life? No, I, I grew up being active. Uh, I was born in uh, Ardmore, Oklahoma. I spent a lot of my life in the, you know, the South, Oklahoma, uh, you know, North Texas. Um, my grandparents lived or, you know, owned a 300 acre uh, ranch. So, you know, I went and spent summers with them. I mean, I still remember just grabbing a BB gun and me and the dog just heading off in the morning and, and, uh, coming on back in the evening. And, uh, you know, so going out and, and doing things and was just always part of my lifestyle. Uh, so as I grew up, I ended up, uh, in, in high school, uh, in a town outside of Fresno, California called Clovis. And, uh, I was going to Clovis high and that's, I'd started working out before that. Just, I remember in junior high, like my dad had one of those old weight sets with the, the plastic, you know, cement, uh, filled, uh, you know, plates and going out there, not knowing what else to do, just doing bench press and curls, bench press and curls, you know, what else do you do with a barbell? Um, and so, but in high school, I started to get a little bit more serious about working out. My main motivation was, 
I wanted girls to look at me because I was pretty skinny. And so back then in the early 90s, everything was uh, bodybuilding. And so, I mean, I still remember like going to the newsstand and seeing if the new issue of, of muscle and fitness had come out and, you know, like really like taking it, it seriously. Um, it's fine. I remember sitting in the back of math class one day and I'm like, the math teacher's teaching something. I'm not paying attention to it because I'm trying to figure out the perfect training split. You know, if I put this exercise here and I put this muscle group there and then I, I do this. And so looking back on it, you know, that wasn't normal. I didn't realize it at the time, but that wasn't normal behavior. Uh, so I really got, you know, into that. And then I started running track my junior year in uh, high school. And that was my introduction to using strength training for something other than just building muscle, you know, increasing performance. And so uh, I ran track for a few years. And, uh, you know, when I got done with that, um, you know, kept working out, I got into mountain biking, uh, kind of through the back door, because I was living in Santa Barbara at the time. And I was working, I'd gotten certified as a personal trainer, I would finally realized that my obsession with, uh, you know, workout stuff wasn't normal, and maybe I could make a, a living doing this. Um, so I got certified as a trainer through the International Sports Sciences Association, or ISSA for short. And uh, their offices uh, were in Santa Barbara. And so I was, I was taking their tests, and I would go in and ask questions personally. They have a tech support line that you can call for help. And so I got to know the guys there. Uh, Charles Staley was working there at the time. I don't know if people know who he is, but he's very well-known. Uh, strength coach in the fitness field, uh, escalating density training is, is the, the training method that he's best known for. But uh, I got to know those guys. And so I did pretty well on my test. And they uh, offered me a position, um, basically an internship to come in and help grade tests, uh, answer questions from people who called in. And so uh, I, I was looking for a way to get to work that didn't involve a car because parking in downtown Santa Barbara was like not it was really hard to, to deal with. And I didn't live that far away from the office. And so I decided to get a bike and I went and I got a mountain bike. I didn't want to get a road bike. So I thought road bikes looked weenie and a mountain bike looked like a BMX bike. It looked more familiar to me. So I bought this mountain bike just to ride to work on. And I had fun, like, you know, riding around the streets on it. And so I knew that there were trails and stuff in those, in the mountains behind Santa Barbara, um, which come to find out is like one of the best riding spots in, uh, in, in California. But uh, so one weekend I got bored and I decided to ride my mountain bike up and down a fire road. And man, I was hooked. It had like all the stuff that I loved, right? Like, you, you know, as a, as a runner, I also ran cross country. I, you know, I really enjoy cross country. And so with mountain biking, you get that runner's high and, and like kind of that cross country, you're out in the woods uh, type of thing or out in nature. And then you turn that thing around and you get this adrenaline rush, like a, like a action sport. And, you know, I tell people like mountain biking is like an action sport and an endurance sport got drunk one night and, and had a baby and, and like that's mountain biking. And, uh, so I was hooked. And so I got into mountain biking, um, that way. And of course, coming from track, I knew that you could use strength training to enhance your performance. So I started looking into stuff to see, uh, what was available. Um, you know, the internet was around back then. Uh, it wasn't what it is today, but there was uh, the internet. But, you know, looking and, and trying to find what I could, I couldn't really find any legit strength training information for mountain biking. Like everything that I found was, you know, three sets of 10 on the leg press and leg curl and leg extension. And I knew that that was just, you know, bodybuilding BS in disguise. And so I just started doing stuff that I knew, like how athletes train, more athletic stuff. And, and uh, eventually I was introduced to kind of the functional movement uh idea um you know it's funny a lot of people don't really know where that a lot of the functional movement stuff originated from there's a australian strength coach named ian king and he was the first guy if you go back and you do your research he was the first guy to start uh, you know really using movement patterns instead of muscle groups and that was kind of a landmark movement in in strength training like instead of training by anatomy you started training through uh movement patterns because the body does movements not you know isolation stuff and so uh, I'd gotten introduced to uh, that through a, uh, a website, uh, T Nation, T Nation. Uh, they're still around, uh, great information. But uh, they had that guy Ian King on there, and I started diving down that rabbit hole. And you know, around the same time, uh, you know, kettlebells. Man, I still remember when I was working for ISSA, getting this um, a copy of this book that somebody sent in for the ISSA to review. And there is this freaking shirtless, hairy-chested, bald-headed 
Russian dude on the cover of this book. It was called Power of the People. It was like, what the hell is this? You know, and again, man, this is like the late 90s. This is before, you know, uh, kettlebells. You know, for, it's Pavel Satsalin, if, if people don't know. And again, he's super well-known in, in many circles. But he's the guy who helped popularize kettlebells. So if you've heard of kettlebells or you work out with kettlebells today, like you you owe some thanks to Pavel Satsalin and his work in that arena. Um, but, uh, you know, the <clears throat> sorry, the point is, is I got um, – you know, introduced to like kettlebells and functional training and a lot of different things. And I started applying these things to what I knew the, the movement and physical demands were of mountain biking. And I, you know, I was seeing results myself. I had some uh, other people that were working out with me and they were seeing good results. And around 2005, I had the idea that like, well, maybe there's other people who'd be interested in this or, you know, there is this thing called the internet. Maybe I'll put up a website. And so I started MTB strength training systems and put up a website and I still don't know where those first newsletter subscribers came from, like how they found me. But all of a sudden, one day I had like 15 people on this newsletter list that I had put on the site. And so I started writing a newsletter and I pretty much put out at least one newsletter every week for the last 15 years. And, you know, a lot of that was, was, uh, you know, through a period, man, I was creating like three new blog posts a week. You know, I just, I had a lot to say in trying to help people understand how to connect. Like really the, the thing that I feel like I, I do really well is to help people connect their movements in their sport to the movements in the gym. So now instead of just doing an exercise, you understand how does this exercise connect to the skills that you need in your sport? And so helping people make that connection, especially, you know, in the mountain biking world, I feel like that was, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I did a good job of helping people understand better. Um, you know, you're no longer just doing kettlebell swing, you're practicing the explosive hip motion you need for a, a manual or bunny hop, you know, things like that. And so, um, but anyway, so that's kind of led me to where I'm at today. Just, you know, in 2005, I started that, that site and I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of uh, top riders and, you know, uh, you know, written for a lot of the top websites and magazines. And, um, but yeah, just, I feel like I've, I've, uh, tried to do my part in helping people understand how to move better both on and off the bike and how those can help them. So, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's the, the long version of it. <laughs> it's, it's interesting when you hear people's stories in the movement field, we were talking before we started, uh, recording and I said, I'm trying to break down the knowledge silos. And you mentioned Pavel, uh, Right here in Pittsburgh is a gentleman named Brett Jones, who's a kettlebell oh, yeah. tra trainer. We interviewed, he used to be a coach of mine. He used to be my coach. Very small world. So we interviewed Brett about a year and a half ago. And I remember talking to Brett, and I think he said he was the second person who took the training that Pavel offered in the U.S. So it's mm -hmm. it's an extremely small world, uh, it even though it isn't. You just talk to somebody and a name drops, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, there's, there's all these people who are interconnected who maybe without the internet, they never would have realized this. Yeah, yep. No, yeah, the internet's definitely done a good, uh, done, uh, you know, a, a great service in helping connect um, different people. Because you mentioned Stuart McGill earlier, like Stuart McGill is very well known in a lot of movement based fitness circles. And, you know, he is a, uh, a researcher, traditionally a researcher, you know, physical therapists and doctors would be more the people who would keep up with his work. But um, but yeah, there are, uh, you know, Greg Cook, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, the, the functional movement screen, he's another guy who's a, you know, a physical therapist by trade, but, you know, very well known, uh, in, in the movement field by, by trainers. And, and so, um, yeah, as you break that down, it, the, the silos, as you put it between fields and you get people in different areas. And I feel like that's one of the things that I've, you know, I, I did a, you know, like I was. I ran track. Like I didn't get into cycling the traditional route, right? Like I didn't start out cycling. I ran track. I did strength training beforehand. Um, even when I got into riding, I did it through the back door. Like I, I, I started riding on my own. I didn't have a group. Like I didn't have a friend. Like a lot of people, when they start riding, especially old, you know, later in life than when they're adults, they usually have like an adult friend of theirs who's like, hey man, you should come check this out. You should come ride with us. And so you get introduced to a, a group or, you know, a, another rider really early and they tend to, you know, usually uh, well-meaningly give you a lot of advice and they don't really give you the chance to, to learn things and work things out. And, you know, I put it like, you know, we, we have a tendency in the cycling world 
you know, first time we see someone struggle, we're like, oh man, you need, you know, clipless pedals. You need this, you need that. And it's like, man, it's like a child learning to walk and you see him fall down once and then you put him in a walker. It's like, are they safer? Yeah, but you didn't give them the chance to learn how to walk. And so, you know, we, I had that chance because I didn't have someone telling me like, this is what you need and this is how you should be doing things. Like I was just out there like doing my best and oh, that worked do that more. That didn't work. Well, don't do that again. And uh, there's something to that. Like that's how we are designed to learn how to move is through mistakes. And I think people, especially as adults, man, we just, we're so afraid of making mistakes and and we don't understand the learning process. Like I I tell my clients when we start working out both, you know, strength training wise and, you know, teaching jujitsu, you know, I show them a new thing and you can see them trying to figure out how do I get this right, right off the bat. And I'm like, dude, you got so many reps between you and actually figuring this out. Just do it, man. Just get them out of the way. Relax. Enjoy the process, right? Like you, you're going to have to have some bad reps to figure this out. So, um, but yeah, it's a, uh, um, you know, I guess my, my point was, is that I feel like a lot of my insights into cycling are because like, I do come from a different silo than most cycling coaches do. And even myself, I've been influenced through, from a lot of people who are from other silos and what you would, you know, traditionally consider to be the realm of a strength coach or something like that. So, um, it is that, uh, and there's a, a book called where good ideas come from. And in it, he talks about this concept called the adjacent possible. And the idea is that you, you gain bits of knowledge and experience and insights. And the, the combination of those things is unique to you and you alone. Right. Like you had an insight into a need for a movement podcast, right? Like there was a moment where you're all everything that led up to that moment gave you this unique insight. And you were able to kind of like peer over the edge and see, well, what's what's possible? What's next from this unique vantage point that I have? What is that adjacent possible? And, you know, so you're able to see these things if, if you have a unique viewpoint. But if you're just stuck in an echo chamber and you don't have a unique viewpoint, like you're never going to see like what's possible for moving things forward. But uh, again, man, these, these ideas for moving things forward can often be threatening to the establishment, um, which is, uh, um, you know, a, a problem in itself. But, uh, but yeah, no, breaking through those silos and, and learning from people in different uh, arenas is, is super important for really developing a good insight into what you're doing. You've mentioned a couple of things that are going to take us down a rabbit hole in one direction, but I think they're they're well suited. One of the things you mentioned a few minutes ago, and this is what I see a lot of in the fit, in the fitness world, you have groups of people who are athletes. You know, if you're somebody who's a runner or a cyclist or you know a, a weightlifter, it's like okay, so you're going to the gym as a weightlifter, you're lifting weights for that. Or if you're a runner, you're going to the gym for that. But so many people don't get the idea. And I think you probably think the same way I do, although I'll I'll welcome your thought. You talked about uh, teaching your clients that we use the gym for our sport. And in your case, I would imagine most of the clients are mountain bikers. Some of them, I would imagine, don't race, but just the idea of going out and riding, that's a sport that they can do whenever. How do you get the idea across when you have clients who are younger, maybe uh, teenagers or you get young adults where everything in their life has been organized? I mean, you described you got your BB gun and your dog and you headed out. And I'm a little bit older than you, but you know, my my parents' rule was you, know, you gotta be home for dinner. Yep. If you're gonna be late, you better find a phone and call us. But now there's everything is organized and just focusing on one of the areas uh that you're in the mountain biking. I mean, you know, you've got kids who are seven or eight years old and mom and dad are sending them to mountain bike camp to learn how to hawk and to learn how to bunny hop. Whereas, you know, half of the fun when you're a kid is realizing, oh, if I slam on the front brake and don't touch the back brake, I go flying over the handlebars. Oops, I won't do that again. Never do that again. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I can still remember doing it on a downhill when I was like seven years old. And it's like, oh, so that's what happens. But how do you find when you get these parents who come in with, you know, for you as, as, a, as a coach and saying, you know, I want my kid to do this, this and this versus I think you hit it well, you know. The way you learn is failing. I remember when I was in Florida doing single speed riding, you know, learning different ways and following a motocross rider who was riding a single speed was finding all these lines. It's like, oh, wow, there's why I failed every single time. 
now when I go in this direction or if I pedal slightly differently, I can do it rather than somebody sitting there and saying, okay, Ben, when you go up this hill, when you push the left pedal down, pause for a second before you hit the right pedal. It makes, it makes a very regimented sort of thing. And I would say for me, it would make it less fun, but I think it probably also makes it more difficult if you as a coach are trying to train riders to be better riders. Yeah, yeah, man, I will admit to you that on some level, I've kind of given up and I don't deal with it. That's why one of the reasons I love jujitsu is because failure is baked into it. It doesn't matter how big you are or what you did beforehand, you are going to get smashed by someone smaller than you when when you first start doing it man it is like you there are zero illusions as to your greatness and so i coach uh a kids i coach you know we've got um you know quite a few kids in the in the kids class um and i think one of the reasons that the parents bring them to us is because these are the kind of parents who recognize the need for that and so you know there 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 is not uh you know, as much of that, but I, I know what you mean because when I first started, uh, when I first opened my training facility that I had for like, you know, six years, uh, in grand junction, my focus was on youth athletes. And, you know, it, that was what I wanted to do is work with, with young athletes. And, and it was very difficult. And this is back, man, this is like, you know, 13 years ago or more. And, and it's only gotten worse since then. And it was like, you know, getting the buy-in of the kid and the coach and the parent, like that was darn near impossible. Coaches are so protective of their athletes. Like they want all the credit if something goes good, but you know, it's not their fault if things go wrong. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, you got to get everybody on board with wanting to do this and being supportive of it, or it's going to make it real difficult. And then, like you said, you need uh, you need parents and, and everybody who's buying into the idea of like, man, we are we're setting you up for a learning environment here, and part of learning is failure, and the struggle is part of it. Like you're, you know, that is just uh, you know how it's going to be, and things should be hard. And so, um, you know, yeah, man. I mean, I would definitely run into the into the parents and the kids that it was like, man, if this is hard, I don't want to do it. You know, if, if, if I don't, I want to feel good every time. I do something. I don't want to experience failure. And it's just really difficult. Like that, that mindset is tough. And that's one of the reasons that I, I have a tough time. Um, like I'm, a, I'm not, you know, a lot of people know me in, in the training side, uh, in the mountain biking world, but I'm not like a super popular, uh, coach necessarily because my message is like, Hey, you probably suck. You know, <laughs> like it's probably you, it's not the bike. And, you know, I, I mean that in the best way possible, right? Like, I'm not trying to put somebody down. I'm just trying to like, you know, it's probably your lack of skill. It's probably your lack of fitness. It's probably your lack of strength. It's probably your lack of, of mobility and movement. Like, that's what's holding you back. Not the fact that, you know, the bike weighs, you know, 31 pounds and you think if you can get it under 30, it's going to make this world a difference. Or you got to get this tubeless tire set or this new doohickey or whatever it is. It's just, you know, the, one of the things that makes mountain biking and cycling in general fun is the technology, but th it's also an instant crutch, an instant crutch for people. And so you can just always fall back on technology being the answer instead of looking at yourself. And so, uh, you know, again, like that's one of the reasons that I love jujitsu is there's zero technology. You know, your, your gi is going to make no difference. You know what? Is, your, your collar might feel a little softer if someone's choking you out with it, right? But it's not, uh, you, there's no way that your, your gi or anything that you can buy and come on the mat with is contributing to your performance. So any failures are 100% you. And so it's just, you know, they have this saying in jujitsu you either win or you learn, right? There is no losing. Like you, you, you learn. Like you learn, like you should be learning. Like, you know, what happened? Why did that happen? And that's one of the reasons that I love jujitsu so much is that it's just this never ending uh, mental chess game that, you know, there, there is an infinite way to, to 
answer the questions that your opponent is putting at you. Not, I mean, not necessarily infinite, but there's just, you know, there is no one way or two ways to do it. Like you can, and, and that's what makes it uh, fun is it's ever, ever evolving. And, and so, but it's a, this giant movement challenge and you got to figure out like, you know, why, what is that guy moving? How is he moving in a way that's not letting me do what I want? And how do I need to move to do what I want? And then, okay, now let's develop a plan to accomplish that. Um, and so like that being, you know, like I said, like baked into the culture for me makes dealing with, uh, with jujitsu and, and people that get into jujitsu way more enjoyable and way more relatable. Um, cause I've always had that mindset. Like I, I always looked at like mountain biking to me was a vehicle for self-improvement. You know, it, it was never, it was never for fitness. It was never for this, you know, friend thing. It was never like, that was what it was. Like that was my vehicle for self-improvement. And, and that's really at the heart of martial arts. Like that's what uh, martial arts is, um, is a vehicle for self-improvement. Um, and so I always felt a little bit like an outsider and it, you know, definitely can tell, like, I don't relate to a lot of mountain bikers and cyclists because they don't have that mindset. Like for them, cycling isn't a vehicle for self-improvement. Like going faster doesn't mean that you've improved as a person, right? Like, so like, that's what you want to be doing. Like, are you improving physically, mentally, you know, spiritually, like all of these things matter. Like just because you got a faster Strava time doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're really improving in the ways that are, are super important, especially long-term. And so, uh, so yeah, having that, that ego centric goal, um, that, that cycling tends to promote, um, definitely makes it harder. And, and for me, I, you know, I, I see a lot of, of cyclists and, and, you know, mountain bikers in particular, just falling victim to a mentality that, you know, may give them some short-term gains, but it's not going to lead to long-term, you know, happiness and success. But, uh, so anyways, yeah, I don't know how the hell that was related to what we were talking about, but there you I'm go. In, I'm interested when we go this, I want to, I'm going to ask two questions. The second one is going to be, how did you get from mountain biking to jujitsu? But the first one where you mentioned, it's like, like I got into mountain biking for self-improvement and it's very clear from our brief conversation so far that, you know, you're a lifetime mover and to, and to you, the most important thing is just to be able to keep moving for the self-improvement. That's, that's your venue. It appears for self-improvement or your, or your method. Do you recall when you were in Santa Barbara and you started biking to get to work and then you took that first fire road? Was that the vehicle then, or is that something that developed uh, a little bit later? Because, you know, one of the things I've noticed with the people that I interview who are pretty athletic and stay active is somewhere around 35 years of age. It kind of, there's like a switch that switches for most of them from, you know, can I get that Strava thing? Or, you know, can I get that PR in the bench? Or can I do the Olympic lifting to, you know, I just want to be able to get out and do what I love to do, whether it's for self-improvement, for stress relief, for, you know, to see that great sunrise or sunset. So what do you recall? Was it initially, you know, that first thing? It's like, oh, this is self-improvement because I suffered like a dog going up the hill. And then I, I had enlightenment going down the hill. Or was it a little later? No, I think it was pretty, it, it was right off the bat. Um, again, like I had, you know, it's, it's your, uh, I had some, uh, how to put this. So growing up, I'd always had an interest in martial arts, right? I remember doing karate with my dad at the YMCA uh, as, as a little kid. And, you know, not anything serious, like just, you know, a very short period, but I remember doing it. I remember like, you know, being into martial arts and that mindset. Um, I did martial arts for a, a little bit in high school. Um, it was a, like kind of a, 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 you know, Korean martial art, kind of like Taekwondo um, type thing. And so, you know, I was into that for like a year. And so, you know, that really just spoke to me that whole, like, you know, what are we doing here, man? We're, we're here to improve ourselves in all of these arenas. And so, uh, and then when I went to my, uh, one year of college, um, before I parted my way out, cause I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, it, uh, it, um, I happened to get put in a, a class on Taoism. It was a, or no, 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 no. It was a, uh, a, a Tai Chi class. That's what it was, which of course is connected to you know, Eastern philosophy and Taoism and stuff. And so, you know, I learned a Tai Chi flow uh, and, and we did that, but there was also reading that we had to do. So I read like the Tao of Pooh, 
um, you know, Zen and the Art of Archery, uh, you know, so, you know, I've been introduced to this, this mindset, this way of looking at the world and through some different experiences um, at a pretty early age. And so to me, that just was always like, I think one of the reasons that I remained active, because even working out for me kind of turned into that. Like it, it was, again, it was a vehicle for self-improvement, the, you know, the discipline, the, um, you know, getting through that last rep and, and building the, that mental toughness, you know, like these were things that were, they counted just as much, if not more as, as like the physical benefits. And so, yeah, when I started riding bikes, man, it, it was pretty much like instantaneous, like, holy crap, here's this thing that I can just really focus on. How do I get better at? Because I really suck at it right now. And it's going to be so much fun. Like once I get better, because I could see better riders, you know, I, I, you know, I eventually did meet some other people and rode with better riders and, and could see what was possible. And I'm like, man, okay, how do I do that? And so, uh, but to your point though, what is interesting is that it kind of leads to the second question, excuse me, which is that it was about like age 35, definitely, you know, when I turned 40, like I'm 45 now that like mountain biking for me changed. Um, because for me, like I was always more into the, the free ride downhill side of things, like, you know, jumping off uh big cliffs, hitting 40 foot doubles, like, you know, crazy stuff that you really have to be focused, man. Like, you cannot let fear be the mind killer or it will screw you over. Like I always, you know, those hell or high water moments where it's like, you know, this is it. I'm going, you got to commit and go like, like those moments. And, and then, and then, you know, all of the training that went into that moment, you know, the, just all the stuff that went into that, both on and off the bike that led to the, the, the ability to face that moment and be able to uh, say, no, I'm going and do it and, and stay calm, stay focused and nail it. And, you know, I love that. Like that's, that was such a huge part of mountain biking for me. And eventually though, man, you can't do that as you get older. It just doesn't work as well because, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you learn how to do things by failing. Well, when you fail doing stuff like that, man, it hurts. Like I have Busts. I've, I've popped both AC joints. I have, you know, had to have surgery on one of my thumbs because this one that doesn't extend all the way up because I popped the tendon in it from a wreck, um, torn meniscus, you know, split my face open. I mean, it's, I, I have a laundry list of injuries that I've incurred. Um, you know, I, I tell people like I've, I've sacrificed uh, many body parts at the altar of the mountain biking gods and some of them twice. And you just don't bounce back as quickly and it, and the injuries start to add up. Like you only do get one meat sack and, and it, like it, it, it they, they, these things are real. And so I mountain biking kind of started changing for me. And, and so part of that thrill wasn't there, which is, you know, that and some other circumstances, just having some more time. Um, Cause I was always interested in jujitsu from UFC one. I mean, who the hell, if you were alive back then and you remember that, like there's a distinct line in the sand, like before UFC one, you know, you're watching Steven Seagal and Jean-Claude Van Damme going like, damn, that's how you do it, man. Like that may work. And then after UFC one, it's like, mm -mm, that dude's going to get taken to the ground and get freaking choked out. And, you know, and so I'd always kind of had an interest coming, having a little bit of a martial arts background. Like I remember doing my punching and kicking martial art and always thinking in the back of my head, like, is this really going to work on the streets? You know, and if this other person isn't playing by the same rules as me, is this really going to work? And then you get into jujitsu and, uh, you know, I had that opportunity, but it, 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 like I said, I just kind of was looking for something else. I wanted to be a white belt at something, both literally and figuratively, you know, after riding for a long time, your, your, your incremental and your, your improvements are, are much smaller, right? When you first start something, it's super fun. Cause every time you do it, you're getting better, you're getting better, you're getting better. And, and like, I remember that from riding. I remember every, like that was part of the thrill is like, every time I go out, I can ride further. I can do something I couldn't do before. And so, uh, so yeah, I wanted to experience that again with something. And so I had the opportunity to get into, uh, into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, um, but, uh, but yeah, no, man, it was, uh, it, that was something that's always baked in, but to your point, the, there was definitely a change in the goals, uh, that I had, um, you know, as, as, as I got older for sure. 
And we get into the third trifecta now, which is where I first became aware of you. I think you've know, done a great job talking about mountain biking and really <laughs> integrating how that plays in with martial arts, which I hadn't thought about. I've had the opportunity to interview a gentleman who taught Tai Chi and meditation. And I still remember telling us like, Don, I can't sit there and meditate. I just can't do that. It drives me crazy. And he said, you know, Ben, when you go out and you hike in the woods with your dogs or you trail run or you mountain bike and I don't do 40 foot doubles like you. I never would have. I recognize my skill levels, but I know you can probably appreciate when you're just out on a nice flowy mountain bike trail. Yeah. And the, the guy said, he said, that's your meditation. So yeah. I think, I think, I think that that really fits in. And I think you've done a really good job of integrating that. My curiosity is because as I mentioned, I came across you because I saw, uh, natural footwear, uh, website. I can't remember which one. And you were interviewed on a podcast or a blog, wrote a blog post for them. And, you know, I Google pedal innovations and I see this gigantic pedal, which <laughs> a, an interesting side effect of that. I recently, uh, sold a bike and I took a picture of it and it had your pedals on it which I didn't sell with it. I kept the pedals and somebody emailed me or, or messaged me on Facebook and said, Hey, I've got no interest in the bike. What the hell are those pedals? Because I want a bigger set of pedals because my feet are size 14. Yeah. yeah so yeah. how do you get from, you know, strength coach, martial arts, we're, we're, we're uh, owning yeah. a jujitsu facility going, you know, all these pedals out there are too small because I know from where you're defining your age, you probably remember on your first mountain bike, you probably had flats and toe clips where you'd have to reach down and tug it in. And then they came out with, uh, you know, mountain bike pedals. You probably remember Onza mountain bike pedals with the, with the, uh, the rubber, the rubber elastomer bumpers where with the type of riding you're doing, probably you'd go off and jump and both feet would come out to better pedals to now it's almost like it's gone full circle in a lot of mountain biking from clipless pedals to flat pedals. So tell us a little bit, first of all, what is the pedal that you have and how does it differ? And then kind of let's get into how you uh, came up with this idea. Yeah, no. So the, the catalyst pedal, that's the, the name of the pedal. Um, it, uh, that was an inspiration one day on the trail, kind of in that meditative flow state where I'm like, uh, you know, at the top of a climb and a little hypoxic because, uh, you know, I'm trying to catch my breath. And so as part of my, um, you know, I used to be a runner, right? And I remember having or uh, them getting me ready for orthotics because my knees and stuff hurt so bad. And so uh, I came across the book Born to Run, um, which, you know, has influenced a lot of people. And so, you know, that made a lot of sense to me as far as like, yeah, you know, the foot, you know, that, that, you know, I'd, I'd even kind of experienced like what happens when you have these overly built over, uh, overly cushioned shoes and stuff. And so I started getting more into the barefoot running barefoot training movement. Um, you know, so like in my gym, you'd work out barefoot or in minimalist shoes, like we wouldn't allow, you know, big bulky shoes, like, you know, your foot, your foot's an amazing, um, uh, part of your body and you need to let it move. You need to let it do its thing. And so, uh, you know, the, the barefoot running and barefoot training was something that was always, you know, had been a part of my thought process for a while. And so I'm sitting out on the trail one day and I'm like, man, why don't I need stiff soled shoes in the gym? Right. So, you know, whether you're on flats or you're on clipless pedals, you know, you're, you're running this thing, like you didn't have really stiff shoes. So you get good power transfer and everything feels secure, or you've got, you know, softer soles, which is a little more comfortable, but they're bending. And it's, you know, so like your foot turns into this weak, unstable mess that you need the soles, you need your, you know, your shoes to fix. And I'm like, well, why don't I have this problem in the gym? Like, why can I be in the gym and I can be squatting or deadlifting, you know, all this weight and, uh, and, and no problem, but I get on my bike and I got this weak, unstable mess. And it just, the answer just kind of hit me out of the blue. And it, it, the initial insight was that, well, it's because the ground stabilizes both ends of your arch when you're standing on the ground, you know, and the arch is one of the strongest forms in nature, but only if you stabilize both ends, if you destabilize one end, the whole thing falls to crap. And so when a, a, a modern, you know, most mountain bike pedals, pretty much all of them, except for mine. Um, are built under the assumption that you only need to push through the ball of your foot, right? There's this idea that riding a bike is like running or walking or jumping, you know? And so 
you need to be on the ball of your foot because you're pushing through the ball of your foot when you're doing these activities. The problem is, uh, is that when you're riding your bike, your foot is not coming off the pedal, right? So you're not actually going anywhere. That's why you can have a stationary bike, right? Like it, the bike is carrying your center of gravity through space. You're not propelling your own center of gravity through space. So when you're running or jumping or walking or doing any of these things, you are propelling your center of gravity through space. But like when you're doing a squat or a deadlift, you're not, right? Your center of gravity is staying in the same space. It's just moving up and down and, and over the same base of support. And so this is a very important thing because how your foot acts in these two situations is very different. And again, this is why when you're in the gym, no one tells you to push through your toes, right? No one tells you like when you're doing squats and deadlifts and lunges, hey, why don't you come up on the balls of your feet and drive through your toes? Because that's how you do it when you run and walk and jump. And that's your most powerful thing, right? So that's what you should be doing all of the time. Well, we don't do this because we recognize that, well, in that context, you want the foot to remain stable. You want pressure on both ends of the arch and, and taking pressure off of one end is going to screw up the whole thing. You're going to have problems with the knees, the low back. You can't recruit the glutes as effectively. So that's why we don't do it. But people had this misunderstanding, right? Like we forget that the, the modern bicycle as we know it is, I think like less than 150 years old, right? Is known as the safety cycle. And so you literally had these dudes in, 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 you know, bowler hats and handlebar mustaches looking at this newfangled safety cycle. And they're like, well, that looks like running or walking. So you should just push through the balls of your feet. Literally, this is where it comes from, right? And so like everyone assumes that there was this council of, of smart people at some time who sat down and actually studied this and confirmed that, yeah, this is actually what's going on. And it hasn't happened, right? It's this echo chamber. You mentioned it earlier. That's the biggest problem with cycling is it is a giant echo chamber. There, there is a church of cycling and everyone knows what the, the 10 commandments are. Thou shalt wear clipless pedals. Thou shalt, you know, do, you know, do this or that, whatever. It's like, and everyone has to toe that line and no one thinks like, well, do we really need to do this? Is this really the best way? You know, maybe it is, but we should just question it and see it. No one, they don't do that. And a lot, and not really, it's not just cycling. It's, it's pretty much everywhere. Right. So that was, you know, my insight was that, you know, we're making this mistake. We're designing the pedals too small because of this false understanding. This this assumption that you need to only have enough to push through the ball of the foot. Since your foot is not coming off the pedal, it's more like doing a series of lunges or squats or deadlifts than it is running or walking or jumping. And so in that case, you want to make sure that you have both ends of the arch stabilized. So that you can create pressure, you know, there's all sorts of things that happen. Not only does it help your, your legs, right? So now, you know, just like in the gym, when you are able to drive through the heel, you have pressure on the backside of the arch as well. This allows you to recruit the hips better. Like one of the number one things that people tell us from the clipless pedal or from uh, um, the catalyst pedal, especially when they're coming from clipless puddles, is that it takes away their pain right? Like ankle pain, knee pain, low back pain, foot pain, this pain that they've had bike fits. They've tried all the different stuff, but as soon as they switch to our pedal and they allow the foot to move naturally and allow the body to move naturally, it takes all that unnatural stress off the body. And now your body can work the right way and it hurts less doing it and you, and you, and you perform better. And it's so, um, but anyway, so that, that was, that was the idea, uh, and, and kind of the insight that I had and, you know, from that point, I've realized there's a lot of other benefits to this design. Like really clipless pedals were never better. We just had crappy flat pedal design. That's all it was. Like, you know, if, if, if from an, if, if anyways, I, I could go on forever, man. It, like, it, you know, if you have a platform that's centered on a rotating axis, it makes no sense to use one pressure point to try to apply pressure into that. Like no engineer, nobody would say that's a smart thing to do. You want two pressure points applying pressure on the ends. Like that's going to allow for the most equal transfer of force, right? So this whole idea that you need to attach your foot to the pedal, what it is, is it's when you have one pressure point, because that's what your ball, your foot and your heel are. They're, they're pressure points. They're, they're ways for your body to apply pressure into the environment. And so when you only have one pressure point, you get this rotating happening, right? Because you can't create equal pressure. You know, you have, you have to have that pressure point perfectly centered over the axle which is almost impossible to do. And most people find extremely uncomfortable. So most people will at least run that cleat a little bit forward of the axle, which is why you see people's toes pointing down, 
when they're pedaling hard. It's, it's uneven forces going into the pedal, rotating the pedal forward and, and, and their foot down, right? Like that's energy that's being lost. Now, one answer to that is to attach your foot to the pedal. Yeah, that's going to keep your foot from flying off the pedal. You know what another answer is? Even the forces out that are going into the pedal have two pressure points that allow for an even transfer of force, keep the platform level, and that keeps the foot from spinning off. And now you have that force instead of being lost in this, ro- this forward rotation is actually being applied going straight down. So there's just, there's a ton of benefits. Like when you really dig into the design and, and the science and the engineering and everything behind it, it, you see, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And, and so, um, but the bike industry just tends to ignore it because it definitely flies in the face of everything they've told people for the last, you know, 20 plus years. Um, but, uh, yeah, it doesn't make me a whole lot of friends at, uh, at, at, at cycling related dinner parties. I, I'm curious though, because I mean, one of the things I, I mentioned before we started recording, uh, good friends with Paul Swift, who does a bike, bike fit company. And Paul's comment was, is like, look, you know, he had a, he had a nice soliloquy on saddles and he's like, you know what? I don't care what your saddle looks like as long as you're comfortable on it, because if you're comfortable on it, you're going to ride. So yeah. a, lot, a lot of cyclists, I'm um, thinking with your pedal design, you know, there are the weight weenies and let's be honest, it's relatively heavy. But on the other hand, when you consider the weight of the bike and the weight of most people who can probably afford to lose five, 10 pounds or more than that, it isn't that much heavier. How Right. Well, you know, well, just real quick, my answer to that is most people understand that there's a trade-off between weight and performance, because if they didn't, all of you guys would be riding 24-inch wheels, right? 24-inch wheels weigh less. Am I wrong? No. But there, there's rotation uh, gains. There, there, you know, there, there, uh, all these things, there's gains from the increase in size. And so you are willing to ride a heavier wheel mm-hmm. because of the increased performance that it allows. That's the same thing with the catalyst pedal. Like you are able to create more power with it. You're able to do it more comfortably. Like all of these things are, they, they translate into improved performance, like faster times. And so, uh, you know, so you, you see there's, there's an increase in, there's a benefit from them that outweighs the weight penalty. So I just, I make that point because most riders understand this, you know, like, uh, if you run a dropper post, a dropper post weighs more than a regular carbon seat post does. Why do you run it? Well, the ability to move the saddle up and down and then be able to move my hips around where I need to lets me ride more effectively. Okay. So there's a trade-off there between performance and weight. And so the catalyst pedals fall in that same area. And once people understand that, it's like, oh, okay, I see. Like it is, you know, it's not just extra grams. I'm gaining performance, um, which most pedals, you don't really get that, right? And that's why most people don't think about that. Like if you buy one pair of pedals versus another pair of pedals, really the performance that you're going to get from them is not going to be very different, right? Because the the design is too small to allow for that different pressure point thing that I was talking about. And so uh, it, you, it does come down to weight. If, if both, if all the pedals are going to give me the same performance, well, which one weighs the least? And so that's where you get into this gram counting thing. You know, handlebars are kind of the same way. You know, there's certain components that get into this gram counting thing, but it's because Man, honestly, if you buy one or the other, you're not really going to notice it on the trail. And they're all probably made in the same factory overseas anyways. They just have different labels put on them. Um, but the Catalyst pedal is different. It's more, like I said, it, it, that's more like going from like, a, you know, your, your, a, a, a regular seat post to a dropper post, right? Like, yeah, you're going to add a little weight. But man, that performance benefit that you're going to get from having your feet being comfortable, from being able to recruit your hips effectively, all the things that the Catalyst pedal allows you to do is far going to outweigh that gram penalty uh, that, that uh, people will talk about. But I have heard that. But again, like once you think about it for a minute, you realize like, oh, that really doesn't make any sense. Um, but yeah, it is something that people think about. I'm curious also listening to you talk, um, knowing some triathletes and road riders, what are their responses when they see the pedals? Man, I've had quite a few. We have a lot of road riders that use them. Um, and again, like one of the main reasons that people buy them and use them is actually pain relief. Like they've gained, like we actually have physical therapists and doctors who recommend these pedals for that reason. And so, you know, when you are facing having to stop riding or just riding in severe pain or being made fun of, a lot of people would just deal with it and they'll deal with being made fun of and they'll just get the bigger pedals. 
And so we've developed actually quite a following in road riding um, from people. And, and, a, and a lot of it originally and, and continues to be from people who are seeking um, just pain relief, man, the ability to go out and ride as long and as hard as you want and not be in pain during and or after the ride. Like that's an important part of riding. Um, and then triathletes, we have a few of them using them. Again, it's a little bit harder sell to them. But the funny thing is, is the people that use them are setting PRs on them. They're going faster on them. And, you know, one of the main reasons is that when they are, there's a, a um, there's actually a study done looking at the midfoot position, which our pedal allows um, versus the ball, the foot position in a, in a duathlon, basically. They're looking at riding and then running. And what they found was that that midfoot position allowed for faster running times. And the thought process is because when you're on the ball, the foot, that the stress that it puts on the calf and Achilles tendon to stabilize the back of the heel, um, because something has to stabilize it that, you know, even, even that, that's that carbon sole, uh, sole is going to, uh, shoe is going to bend some, right? So you're placing this, this, uh, tension on it. And so when you get off and you start running after the ball, the foot, you've seen triathlon triathletes start running. They got that Frankenstein run because their, their legs are so stiff <laughs> from that. And it takes a little while for their legs to kind of loosen up so that they can actually start running. And so when you're able to jump off of the bike and you've lost no time on the ride, right? Like, again, we've, we've got these triathletes and, and the, the reports that we get back, like they're, they're riding just as fast on the road, on their, on the ride, but then they jump off. And not only do they not have to change shoes because they get to ride in the same shoes that they run in, but as soon as they hit the ground, they're able to just start running. And so now they're running faster. And so they're, they're, uh, you know, setting PRs like, so yeah, I've got one of the guys I trained jujitsu with is a big triathlon coach and he was really into the bike fit thing and help write some manuals for like cleat position and stuff. And I, and I didn't do any hard sell on him, man. He just, you know, we're doing jujitsu, you know, he knew that I sold the pedal and eventually he comes up, you know, cause he's just hearing me talk about it and it's tough to hear me talk about it and not be, I don't know. I mean, I got a lot of, uh, science and other things behind my rationale for it. It's not just a crazy idea, you know, so it piqued his curiosity. And so he's like, Hey man, let me, let me try one of these pairs of pedals. And I'm like, sure, man, no problem. And so he comes back and he's just like, dude, my mind is blown. It's changed everything that I thought about foot position and pedals. You know, he's like, I was, I averaged one mile an hour faster on my training ride with these, with these pedals. And, uh, and so, yeah, he is now a full convert. He's, he's trying to figure out how to get the same effect from clipless pedals. Cause he's still like, just so like, there has to be some way to attach my foot to the pedal and get the same thing. But the problem is, is once you attach your foot to the pedal, you've created that single pressure point, right? So again, it's not the position of the foot. And again, this is, this is what is, it's going to take a while for people to wrap their minds around what is going on here. It's not the position of the foot. It's the pressure points that you're putting into the pedal. That's the important difference, right? So you can have a midfoot position on a small pedal and you're still not going to get the same benefits and same feel as you're going to get from the catalyst pedal because you're not able to get the pressure points uh, that the catalyst pedal allows. And so, and that's the problem with clipless pedals is they're always going to be a single pressure point design. And so you're always going to have to deal with the, the, the trade-offs um, from that. And so, um, you know, I just, you know, I don't, I'm not saying it's impossible, but for me, I'm, I'll let somebody else figure that out. Cause I've always been a flat pedal guy. Like, you know, I, I started out on flats. I, I changed, I rode clipless. I tried to learn how to use them. I, I spent, you know, a couple months like riding to work on them. I spent, you know, time practicing clipping in and out in a grass field and really just trying to get comfortable with it. And I never got comfortable enough to go ride on the trail with them. And then I had the proverbial fall over to stop sign moment, you know, and I was like, dude, this is insane. Like I would have died on the trail. And so I decided like, yeah, you know, I had another rider that I was riding with and he rode um, flats and he was a good rider. And so I'm like, well, I know I can get at least as good as him before I need to switch to clipless puddles. So I just went and got flats with the idea, the idea that like, hey, when I know that it's, it's not me that's holding myself back, it's my puddles, then I'll look at switching. And so like, that was one of the things that led to the flat pedal revolution manifesto, which you mentioned that you had read, like, you know, all the science behind the pedal stroke, like, you know, the, the, you know, again, there's so much misunderstanding about just the basic pedal stroke and the muscles used and, and clipless versus flats in the first place. And then you start trying to tell people like, okay, now not only do you need a flat pedal, but you also need a flat pedal that's like way longer than anything you've ever seen before. And, um, so yeah, it's going to be, it, it's going to be some time, but I, I, again, I think that the, the science, the movement principles, um, you know, all, everything is, is behind it. And that eventually you're going to see this design become 
the the dominant design on the market because it's just going to become undeniable that this is the better way for your foot to interface with the pedal at least for your average rider right like you know the clipless pedals may always have a place in like competition but i, I compare that to like you know, a powerlifting weight suit or you're even like a weight belt, right? That's like saying like, Hey, the strongest guys in the world use a weight belt when they compete. So that means that I should wear, wear a weight belt every time that I work out. Well, that's the same mindset for someone who only rides clipless pedals. It's like, you know, all right, maybe the fastest riders in the world wear clipless pedals, but there's still a place for training raw, right? There's still a place for just letting your foot make mistakes, figure out how to create pressure, like training on flats is going to make you a better rider. And then if you do switch to clipless pedals and you do decide to use them, you're actually going to be a better rider because you're going to be using good movement and good technique, not just whatever the movement dysfunctions and things that the, the you know, the clipless pedals greatest asset is also its biggest liability, which is that you can do anything. You can just pull up on the pedals and the wheels will come up. You can pedal any way you want. And those things are going to go around. It, you don't have to keep pressure on the pedals and your feet won't come off. Right. And so like, again, in a, in a race situation where any of these things in a fatigue state could make the difference between, you know, podium being on a podium and not then maybe, right. We, we can have that discussion, but it, you know, again, just working with high level riders, that was another thing that opened my mind to this is you know, most high level riders are really good on flats, right? Like they built their skills on flats and then they use clipless pedals. But you know, this idea that sold to the general public about clipless pedals being the way and um is is just not accurate and uh, i feel it's actually doing a disservice um to uh, a lot of people unnecessarily so um so yeah man that's uh that, that, that's that i know i know listening to you talk about the pedals too one of the things that comes to mind that you haven't even mentioned cycling as you said is a relatively closed field and i mean if you're an unfamiliar or new cyclist and you walk into most bike shops, I won't say all, it's intimidating. Because if you say, yes, I want to ride a few trails, you know, the first thing they're going to do, and again, this is most, not all, you know, they're going to try to sell you a $5,000 bike, where maybe you don't need a $5,000 bike, and they're going to convince you, well, you need clipless pedals, they're going to convince you, well, you know, you need this, this and that. And I think one of the things, and I'm saying this as a consumer who paid full retail, you didn't give me pedals. Um, you know, I let my girlfriend try them who really this year got into biking for the first time. Uh, and one of the things that I noticed with her is starting from a stop when mountain biking, we're not doing technical things because of the larger platform. She was more secure than when it was a smaller platform of regular pla pedals. So mm -hmm. you know, she could get started and then she was at pace. She could readjust her position. So I think that's one of the things you didn't mention that if people are listening, it's like, you know, that larger platform also can be a safety or a comfort thing for people who maybe aren't skilled like me, or maybe are new to cycling. Yeah. Yeah. No, man, having that, that platform down there, your foot wants it, right? Like that's one of the reasons that, um, you know, people, uh, feel better sitting down, like seated pedaling. That's another thing in my training stuff that I really emphasize for riders. I think for every, no matter what your discipline, like seated pedaling is a turd, man. You know, it's her terrible for you, right? Like if sitting's the new smoking, what is seated pedaling? Like bong hits of crack? Like, you know, it, it's terrible for your body being locked in the adult fetal position, laying a ton of tension on the system, right? It, it's tension is what creates stiffness, right? So being sitting down and recovering, right? Where you're, you're easy spinning, not a lot of tension in the system. That's fine. That's not going to hurt anyone, but it's when you lock down and you start creating a lot of tension in the system. And, and that's what creates stiffness. And you don't want to be doing that. You don't want to be creating stiffness in the adult fetal position. So standing up allows you to get into a much more natural position. There's still some compromises and problems. It's not hundred percent natural, but you're able to, you know, get your hips forward. And so your shoulders are more over your hips, your hips are more over your feet. You're able to drive with the, the whole leg and, and get full hip extension. Right? Like people spend buku amounts of money on bike fits to try and get the knee angle just right. Right. Well, guess what? When you stand up, you get the perfect knee angle, which is uh, locked out because actually, again, something people don't realize when you are running, walking, doing all this stuff. Um, when you when your knee is locked out, you get a co-contraction between the quad and the hamstring to stabilize the knee. And then you're using the hips to finish off the most powerful part of the the, you know, the running or jumping or whatever that is. And so when you're sitting down you're not able to get that co-contraction because you don't get hundred percent knee extension and you don't have pressure on the foot. You know, the pressure's on your butt. 
And so you're, you're running all this tension through your knee in this unstable position. And it's one of the reasons that people's knees kill them and, and hurt them. And there's a whole industry of, you know, shoes and, and bike fits and all this stuff to try and solve this problem. And all you need to do is stand up. But again, it doesn't feel secure to stand up when you're bounced on your tippy toes and you got these tiny little platforms that have a single pressure point that's creating this tipping motion, the harder that you push into them. And so it leads people to this, like, well, I need to sit down to be more stable. Right. And so your people sit down too much, even climbing, like that's misunderstood. Like if, if you needed weight on your seat in order to create traction, then uh, Clydesdale riders would never break traction and would just go up the climbs. No problem. Right. That's not the problem, right? Like people, for, like, they, that's not it. What you want is pressure. Pressure is weight used actively, right? So if you think about like standing on a scale, right? Like you weigh whatever that is. Like for me, it's about like 170 pounds. But then I can like, without breaking contact with the scale, I can drive my weight into the scale and make the needle move, right? So I didn't change weight. I'm still 170 pounds. Well, how did I make the needle move and, and increase the weight? Well, it was because I created pressure. My weight was used actively to create pressure, um, into the scale. And so that's what you need for traction. And so it's not your butt on the seat. Like you, everyone's seen people climb things without sitting down. Right. But then we turn around and we tell riders, well, you need to sit down so that, you know, you're going to lose traction. If you take your butt off the seat, it's not true. It's not accurate. Right. That's it, it, you know, it, again, large people would, would have the best traction. Um, but you can have too much weight on the rear wheel, which creates problems and spinning out. And so standing up and learning how to use your weight to create the right weight to pressure ratio will actually help you climb more effectively. And so, and you're going to be doing it in a much better position for your body. And, but again, it's very hard to do that if you if your pedals are too small. And so again, there's this rabbit hole, man. Like once your once your foot is unstable, once you don't have good, uh, you know, solid platform, a good solid platform for your foot to operate from everything else has to be compensated for. And so what you start to realize is a lot of the riding advice and a lot of the things that we're told today are actually just compensations for this unstable foot position, not what's actually best for us from a movement standpoint and even from a performance standpoint. But um, yeah, man, to your point, the, the larger platform is more confidence inspiring. And so, you know, it will help you both with just feeling confident on the bike in general, but then also in trying things that you may not have tried before that instinctively your brain is going like, dude, you don't have the stability and whatnot and the balance to go for that. And so, you know, your, 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 your brain knows, right? Your brain is always monitoring these things. So your mental confidence can hold back your, or, you know, your, your physical or your physical, you know, abilities can hold back your mental confidence. And so if your feet feel more stable, you know, it sounds silly, but man, we get this report all the time from people who are like, man, I first ride out on these things. I rode through something that I always walk. And it's like, yeah, because your, your body feels so much more confident when your feet are stable, you know, just basic movement principle stuff. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's, it's, uh, not something that a lot of riders necessarily, uh, realize because the cycling world and cycling coaches and stuff, they just, this isn't how they think this isn't, you know, where they're just busy repeating what they learned from the next cycling guy who learned it from the next cycling guy, who learned it from the next cycling guy. But this whole thought process of like, well, let's look at how the human body optimally moves and then now how do we apply that to the bike, right? It sounds obvious, but, and it sounds like that should be the way that we do it, but that's not the, the cycling industry's approach to it. It's usually, well, let's look at this machine. Now, how do we manipulate the body to fit a theoretical model of how we think this machine should be uh, manipulated? That's where the whole push pull thing came from, which again, studies have shown is not the best way to do it. And that's why because you can theorize it. If I was designing a machine from scratch, would I want it to push and pull? Well, yeah, we're not a machine. We're an organism. We optimally push. We're designed to push, not pull. And when you try to pull, you take away from your push actually. And so, you know, for, for riders out there, you need to focus on just a good, strong downstroke, you know, and letting the trail leg come up enough to not interfere with the pedal stroke itself. But you don't need to be trying to pull up and apply power on the backstroke. That is not the best way, uh, you know, the best way to do it. But, um, but again, the, these theories of, of like, man, how do we get the body to, it's a machine. How do we get it to do what we want for this bike? Um, they lead to these, these, these rabbit holes, um, you know, that, uh, that, that can lead riders in, in bad directions. But, um, yeah, man, the, the catalyst pedal just changes your riding experience on a bunch of different levels. We've been talking to James Wilson. I think one of the things I like about the catalyst pedal 
is from what he said over the last few minutes, <clears throat> and again, I'm generalizing as somebody who's familiar with the fitness field, the first thing you'd expect is he would write a book and sell it and get everybody to buy his ebook. But instead of that, I'm assuming it was somewhat tongue in cheek. You have the flat pedal manifesto where we'll have show notes where people can actually download and take the deep dive even deeper into what you said and either reach the conclusion that I reach. It's like, hey, I'd like to try this. And as I said at the beginning, you know, I'm kind of a fan or they can say, oh, no, I don't really agree with this. But rather yeah. than rather than having to buy the book, they can try it out themselves. They can read it and they can look at the research that you cited in that. James, yeah. I want to I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to Moving to Live and tell an interesting story. And just at the very least, if somebody's listening to this, if it encourages them to move more or move differently, I, I think it's a success. So thank you very much. Yeah, man, my pleasure. It's been uh, it's been fun. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live wherever you find podcasts or on our website, www.moving2live.com. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live and check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, F-I-T-L-A-B-P-G-H.com, which focuses on people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority because movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. Until next time, keep on moving.